0: Hello, I'm Will, that's Will with no, an and let's get on to chapter 10 and 11. Chapter 10 When his servant entered, he looked at him steadfastly and wondered if he had thought of peering behind the screen. The man was quite impassive and waited for his orders. Dorian lit a cigarette and walked over to the glass and glanced into it. He could see the reflection of Victor's face perfectly. It was like a placid mask of servility. There was nothing to be afraid of there, yet he thought it best to be on his guard. Speaking very slowly, he told him to tell the housekeeper that he wanted to see her, and then to go to the frame-maker and ask him to send two of his men round at once. It seemed to him that as the man left the room, his eyes wandered in the direction of the screen. Or was that merely his own fancy? After a few moments, in her black silk dress, with old-fashioned thread mittens on her wrinkled hands, Mrs. Leaf bustled into the library. He asked her for the key of the schoolroom. "'The old schoolroom, Mr. Dorian,' she exclaimed. "'Why, it is full of dust. I must get it arranged and put it back before you go into it. It is not fit for you to see, sir. It is not, indeed. I don't want to put it straight, Leaf. I only want the key.' "'Well, sir, you'll be covered in cobwebs if you go into it. Why, it hasn't been opened for nearly five years, not since his lordship died.' he winced at the mention of his grandfather. He had hateful memories of him. "'That does not matter,' he answered. "'I simply want to see the place. That is all. Give me the key.' "'And here is the key, sir,' said the old lady, going over the contents of her bunch with tremulously uncertain hands. "'Here is the key. I'll have it off the bunch in a moment. But you don't think of living up there, sir, and you so comfortable here.' "'No, no,' he cried petulantly. "'Thank you, Leif. That will do.' She lingered for a few moments and was garrulous over some detail of the household. He sighed and told her to manage things as she thought best. She left the room, wreathed in smiles. As the door closed, Dorian put the key in his pocket and looked around the room. His eye fell on a large purple satin coverlet, heavily embroidered with gold, a splendid piece of late 17th century Venetian work that his grandfather had found in a convent near Bologna. Yes, and that would serve to wrap the dreadful thing in. It had perhaps served often as a pow for the dead. Now it was to hide something that had a corruption of its own, worse than the corruption of death itself. Something that would breed horrors and yet would never die. What the worm was to the corpse, his sins would be to the painted image on the canvas. They would mar its beauty and eat away its grace. They would defile it and make it shameful. And yet the thing would still live on. It would be always alive, he shuddered and for a moment he regretted that he had not told Basil the true reason why he had wished to hide the picture away. Basil would have helped him to resist Lord Henry's influence, and the still more poisonous influences that came from his own temperament. The love that he bore him, for it was really love, had nothing in it that was not noble and intellectual. It was not that mere physical admiration of beauty that is born of the senses, and that dies when senses tire. It was such love as Michelangelo had known, and Montaigne, And Winkleman, and Shakespeare himself. Yes, Basil could have saved him, but it was too late now. The past could always be annihilated, regret, denial, or forgetfulness could do that. But the future was inevitable. There were passions in him that would find their terrible outlet, dreams that would make the shadow of their evil real. He took up from the couch the great purple and gold texture that covered it, and holding it in his hands, passed behind the screen. Was the face on the canvas viler than before? It seemed to him that it was unchanged, and yet his loathing of it was intensified. Gold hair, blue eyes, and rose-red lips, they were all there. It was simply the expression that had altered. That was horrible in its cruelty. Compared to what he saw in it of censure or rebuke, how shallow Basil's reproaches about Sibyl Vane had been. How shallow! And of what little account! His own soul was looking out at him from the canvas and calling him to judgment. A look of pain came across him, and he flung the rich pall over the picture. As he did so, a knock came to the door. He passed out as his servant entered. Persons are here, Monsieur. He felt that the man must be got rid of at once. He must not be allowed to know where the picture was being taken to. There was something sly about him, and he had thoughtful, treacherous eyes. Sitting down at the writing table, he scribbled a note to Lord Henry asking him to send around something to read and reminding him that they were to meet at 8.15 that evening. "'Wait for an answer,' he said, handing it to him, "'and show the men in here.'" In two or three minutes, there was another knock, and Mr. Hubbard himself, the celebrated frame-maker of South Audley Street, came in with a somewhat rough-looking young assistant. Mr. Hubbard was a florid, red-whiskered little man whose admiration for art was considerably tempered by the inveterate incompuniosity of most of the artists who dealt with him. As a rule, he never left his shop. He waited for the people to come to him, but he always made an exception in favor of Dorian Gray. There was something about Dorian that charmed everybody. It was a pleasure even to see him. "'What can I do for you, Mr. Gray?' he said, rubbing his fat, freckled hands. "'I thought I would do myself the honor of coming round in person. I have just got a beauty of a frame, sir. Picked it up at a sale. Old Florentine.'" Came from Fonthill, I believe. Admirably suited for a religious subject, Mr. Gray. I am so sorry you've given yourself the trouble of coming round, Mr. Hubbard. I shall certainly drop in and look at the frame. Though I don't go in much at present for religious art, but today I only want a picture carried to the top of the house for me. It is rather heavy, so I thought I would ask you to lend me a couple of your men. No trouble at all, Mr. Gray. I am delighted to be of any service to you. Which is the work of art, sir? "'This,' replied Dorian, moving the screen back. "'Can you move it, covering it all, just as it is? "'I don't want it to get scratched going upstairs.' "'There will be no difficulty, sir,' said the genial frame-maker, "'beginning, with the aid of his assistant, "'to unhook the picture from the long brass chains by which it was suspended. "'And now, where shall we carry it to, Mr. Gray?' "'I will show you the way, Mr. Hubbard, if you will kindly follow me. "'Or perhaps you had better go in front.' I am afraid that it is right at the top of the house. We will go up by the front staircase, as it is wider." He held the door open for them, and they passed out into the hall and began the ascent. The elaborate character of the frame had made the picture extremely bulky, and now and then, in spite of the obsequious protests of Mr. Hubbard, who had the true tradesman-spirited dislike of seeing a gentleman doing anything useful, Dorian put his hand to it so as to help them. "'Something of a load to carry, sir!' gasped the little man when they reached the top landing, and he wiped his shiny forehead. "'I'm afraid it is rather heavy,' murmured Dorian, as he unlocked the door that opened into the room that was to keep for him the curious secret of his life and hide his soul from the eyes of men. He had not entered the place for more than four years, not indeed, since he had used it first as a playroom when he was a child, and then as a study when he grew somewhat older. It was a large, well-proportioned room, Which had been specially built by the last Lord Kelso for the use of the little grandson, whom, for his strange likeness to his mother, and also for other reasons, he had always hated and desired to keep at a distance. It appeared to Dorian to have but little changed. There was a huge Italian cassone, with its fantastically painted panels and its tarnished gilt moldings, in which he had so often hidden himself as a boy. There, the satin wood bookcase filled with his dog-eared schoolbooks. On the wall behind it was hanging the same ragged Flemish tapestry, where a faded king and queen were playing chess in a garden, while a company of hawkers rode by, carrying hooded birds in their gauntleted wrists. How well he remembered it all! Every moment of his lonely childhood came back to him as he looked round. He recalled the stainless purity of his boyish life, and it seemed horrible to him that it was here the fatal portrait was to be hidden away. How little he had thought in those dead days! Of all that was in store for him. But there was no other place in the house so secure from prying eyes as this. He had the key, and no one else could enter it. Beneath its purple pall, the face painted on the canvas could grow bestial, sodden, and unclean. What did it matter? No one could see it. He himself would not see it. Why should he watch the hideous corruption of his soul? He kept his youth. That was enough. And, besides, might not his nature grow finer, after all? There was no reason that the future should be so full of shame. Some love might come across his life, and purify him, and shield him from those sins that seemed to be already stirring in spirit and in flesh, those curious, unpictured sins whose very mystery lent him their subtlety and their charm. Perhaps, some day, the cruel look would have passed away from the scarlet, sensitive mouth, and he might show to the world Basil Hallward's masterpiece. No, that was impossible. Hour by hour, and week by week, The thing upon the canvas was growing old it might escape the hideousness of sin but the hideousness of age was in store for it the cheeks would become hollow or flaccid yellow crow's feet would creep round the fading eyes and make them horrible the hair would lose its brightness the mouth would gape or droop would be foolish or gross as the mouths of old men are there would be the wrinkled throat the cold blue veined hands the twisted body that he remembered in the grandfather who had been so stern to him in his boyhood The picture had to be concealed. There was no help for it. "'Bring it in, Mr. Hubbard, please,' he said, warily turning around. "'I'm sorry I kept you so long. I was thinking of something else.' "'Always glad to have a rest, Mr. Gray,' answered the frame-maker, who was still gasping for breath. "'Where shall we put it, sir?' "'Oh, anywhere. Here, this will do. I don't want it to have it hung up. Just lean against the wall. Thanks.' ''Might one look at the work of art, sir?'' Dorian started. ''It would not interest you, Mr. Hubbard,'' he said, keeping his eye on the man. He felt ready to leap upon him and fling him to the ground, if he dared to lift the gorgeous hanging that concealed the secret of his life. ''I shan't trouble you any more now. I am much obliged for your kindness in coming round.'' ''Not at all, not at all, Mr. Gray. Ever ready to do anything for you, sir?'' and Mr. Hubbard tramped downstairs, followed by the assistant, who glanced back at Dorian with a look of shy wonder in his rough, uncomely face. He had never seen anyone so marvelous. When the sound of their footsteps had died away, Dorian locked the door and put the key in his pocket. He felt safe now. No one would ever look upon that horrible thing. No eye but his would ever see his shame. On reaching the library, he found that it was just after five o'clock and that the tea had been already brought up. On a little table of dark perfumed wood thickly encrusted with nacre, a present from Lady Radley, his guardian's wife, a pretty professional invalid, who had spent the preceding winter in Cairo, was lying a note from Lord Henry. Beside it was a book bound in yellow paper, the cover slightly torn and the edges soiled. A copy of the third edition of the St. James Gazette had been placed on the tea tray. It was evident that Victor had returned. He wondered if he had met the men in the hall as they were leaving the house and wormed out of them what they had been doing. He was sure to miss the picture, had no doubt missed it already, while he had been laying the tea things. The screen had not been set back, and a blank space was visible on the wall. Perhaps some night he might find him creeping upstairs and trying to force the door of the room. It was a horrible thing to have a spy in one's house. He had heard of rich men who had been blackmailed all their lives by some servant who had read a letter or overheard a conversation. Or picked up a card with an address, or found beneath the pillow a withered flower or a shred of crumpled lace. He sighed and, having poured himself out some tea, opened Lord Henry's note. It was simply to say that he had sent him round the evening paper and a book that might interest him, and that he would be at the club at 8.15. He opened the St. James languidly and looked through it. A red pencil mark on the fifth page caught his eye. It drew attention to the following paragraph. Inquest on an actress, an inquest was held this morning at the Bell Tavern, Hoxton Road, by Mr. Danby, the district coroner, on the body of Sibyl Vane, a young actress recently engaged at the Royal Theatre, Holborn. A verdict of death by misadventure was returned. Considerable sympathy was expressed for the mother of the deceased, who was greatly affected during the giving of her own evidence, and that of Mr. Birrell, who had made the post-mortem examination of the deceased. He frowned and, tearing the paper in two, went across the room and flung the pieces away. How ugly it all was! And how horribly real ugliness made things! He felt a little annoyed with Lord Henry for having sent him the report, it was certainly stupid of him to have it marked with red pencil. Victor might have read it. The man knew more than enough English for that. Perhaps he had read it and began to suspect something, and yet what did it matter? What had Dorian Gray to do with Sybil Vane's death? There was nothing to fear. Dorian Gray had not killed her. His eye fell on the yellow book that Lord Henry had sent him. What was it? he wondered. He went towards the little pearl-collared octagonal stand that had always looked to him like the work of some strange Egyptian bees that wrought in silver, and taking up the volume, flung himself into an armchair and began to turn over the leaves. After a few minutes he became absorbed. It was the strangest book that he had ever read. It seemed to him an exquisite raiment, and to the delicate sound of flutes, the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him things that he dimly dreamed of were suddenly made real to him, things of which he had never dreamed were gradually revealed. It was a novel without a plot, and with only one character, being, indeed, simply a psychological study of a young Parisian who had spent his life trying to realize in the 19th century the passions and modes of thought that belonged to every century except his own, and to sum up, as it were, in himself the various moods through which the world spirit had ever passed, loving for their mere artificiality those renunciations that men unwisely called virtue as much as those natural rebellions that wise men still call sin. The style in which it was written was that curious jeweled style, vivid and obscure at once, full of argot and of archaisms, of technical expressions and of elaborate paraphrases, that characterizes the work of some of the finest artists of the French school of symbolistes. There were in it metaphors as monstrous as orchids, And as subtle in color. The life of the senses was described in terms of mystical philosophy. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint or the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odor of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as it was of complex refrains and movements, elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad, as he passed from chapter to chapter, a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming, that made him unconscious of the falling sky and creeping shadows. Cloudless, and pierced by one solitary star, a copper-green sky gleamed through the windows. He read on by its one light till he could read no more. Then, after his valet had reminded him several times of the lateness of the hour, he got up and going into the next room, placed the book on the little Florentine table that always stood at his bedside, and began to dress for dinner. It was almost nine o'clock before he reached the club, where he found Lord Henry sitting alone in the morning room, looking very much bored. I am so sorry, Harry, he cried. But really, it is entirely your fault. That book you sent me so fascinated me that I forgot how the time was going. Yes, I thought you would like it, replied his host, rising from his chair. I didn't say I liked it, Harry. I said it fascinated me. There is a great difference. Ah, you've discovered that, murmured Lord Henry, and they passed into the dining room. Chapter 11. For years, Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he never sought to free himself from it. He procured from Paris no less than nine large paper copies of the first edition, and had them bound in different colors so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of a nature over which he seemed, at times, to have almost entirely lost control. The hero, the wonderful young Parisian, in which whom the romantic and the scientific temperaments were so strangely blended, became to him a kind of prefiguring type of himself, and, indeed, the whole book seemed to him to contain the story of his own life, written before he had lived it. In one point he was more fortunate than the novel's fantastic hero. He never knew, never indeed, had any cause to know, that somewhat grotesque dread of mirrors, and polished metal surfaces, and still water, which came upon the young Parisian so early in his life, and was occasioned by the sudden decay of a beauty that had once, apparently, been so remarkable. It was with an almost cruel joy, and perhaps in nearly every joy, as certainly in every pleasure cruelty has its place, that he used to read the latter part of the book, with its really tragic, if somewhat overemphasized, account of the sorrow and despair of one who had himself lost what in others and in the world he had most dearly valued. For the wonderful beauty that had so fascinated Basil Howard and many others besides him, never seemed to leave him. Even those who had heard the most evil things against him, and from time to time strange rumors about his mode of life crept through London and became the chatter of the clubs, could not believe anything to his dishonor when they saw him. He had always the look of someone who had kept himself unspotted from the world, Many who grossly became silent when Dorian Gray entered the room. There was something in the purity of his face that rebuked them. His mere presence seemed to recall to them the memory of the innocence that they had tarnished. They wondered how one so charming and graceful as he was could have escaped the stain of an age that was at once sordid and sensual. Often, on returning home from one of those mysterious and prolonged absences that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends or thought that they were so, He himself would creep upstairs to the locked room, open the door with the key that never left him now, and stand, with a mirror, in front of the portrait that Basil Howard had painted of him, looking now at the evil and ageing face on the canvas, and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure; he grew more and more enamoured of his own beauty, more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care, and sometimes with a monstrous and terrible delight, the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead, or crawled around with the heavy, sensual mouth, wondering sometimes which were the more horrible, the signs of sin or the signs of age. He would place his white hands beside the coarse, bloated hands of the picture, and smile. He mocked the misshapen body and the failing limbs. There were moments, indeed, at night, when, lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber, ill-famed tavern near the docks, which, under an assumed name and in disguise, it was his habit to frequent. He would think of the ruin that he brought upon his soul, with a pity that was all the more poignant because it was purely selfish. But moments such as these were rare. That curiosity about life which Lord Henry had first stirred in him as they sat together in the garden of their friend seemed to increase with gratification. The more he knew, the more he desired to know. He had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them, Yet, he was not really reckless, at any rate, in his relations to society. Once or twice every month during the winter, and on each Wednesday evening while the season lasted, he would throw up into the world his beautiful house and have the most celebrated musicians of the day to charm his guests with the wonders of their art. His little dinners, in the settling of which Lord Henry had always assisted him, were noted as much for the careful selection and placing of those invited, for the exquisite taste shown in the decoration of the table, with its subtle symphonic arrangements of exotic flowers and embroidered cloths, and the antique plate of gold and silver. Indeed, there were many, especially among the very young men, who saw, or fancied that they saw, in Dorian Gray the true realization of a type of which they had often dreamed of in Eden or in Oxford days, a type that was to combine something of the real culture of the scholar with all the grace and distinction and perfect manner of a citizen of the world, to them, he seemed to be of the company of whom Dante describes as being sought to make themselves perfect by the worship of beauty. Like Gaucher, he was one for whom the visible world existed. And certainly, to him, life itself was the first and the greatest of the arts, and for it all the other arts seemed to be but a preparation. Fashioned by which what is really fantastic becomes for a moment universal, and dandyism, which in its own way, is an attempt to assert the absolute modernity of beauty had, of course, their fascination for him. His mode of dressing, and the particular styles that from time to time he affected, had their marked influence on the young exquisites of the Mayfair Balls and Pall Mall Club windows, who copied him in everything that he did, and tried to reproduce the accidental charm of his graceful, though to him only half-serious, fopperies. For, while he was but too ready to accept the position that was almost immediately offered to him of his coming of age, and found, indeed, a subtle pleasure in the thought that he might really become to the London of his own day, what to imperial Neronian Rome, the author of Satyricon, once had been. Yet in his inmost heart he desired to be something more than a mere arbiter elegantarium, to be consulted on the wearing of a jewel or the knotting of a necktie or the conduct for Cain. He sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles in finding the spiritualizing of the senses its highest realization. The worship of the senses has often, and with much justice, has been decried, men feeling a natural instinct of terror about passions and sensations that seem stronger than themselves, and that they are conscious of sharing with the less highly organized forms of existence. But it appeared to Dorian Gray that the true nature of the senses has never been understood, and that they had remained savage and animal merely because the world had sought to starve them to submission or to kill them by pain, instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality, of which a fine instinct for beauty was to be the dominant characteristic. As he looked back upon man moving through history, he was haunted by a feeling of loss. So much had been surrendered, and to such little purpose. There had been mad willful rejections, monstrous forms of self-torture and self-denial, whose origin was fear, and whose result was a degradation infinitely more terrible than that fancied degradation from which, in their ignorance, they had sought to escape. Nature, in her wonderful irony, driving out the anchorite to feed with the wild animals of the desert, and giving to the hermit the beasts of the field as his companions. Yes, there was to be, as Lord Henry had prophesied, a new hedonism that was to recreate life, and to save it from that harsh, uncomely Puritanism that is having, in our own day, its curious revival. It was to have its service of the intellect, certainly. Yet, it was never to accept any theory or system that would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience. Its aim, indeed, was to experience itself, and not the fruits of experience, sweet or bitter as they may be, of the asceticism that deadens the senses, as of the vulgar profligacy that dulls them, it was to know nothing, but it was to teach men to concentrate upon the moments of a life that is itself but a moment. There are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn, either after one of those dreamless nights that makes us almost enamored of death, or one of those nights of horror and misshapen joy, when through the chambers of the brain sleep phantoms more terrible than reality itself, an instinct with that vivid life that lurks in all grotesques, and that lends to the gothic art its enduring vitality. This art being, one might fancy, especially the art whose minds had been troubled with the malady of reverie, gradually white fingers creep through the curtains, and they peer to tremble in black fantastic shapes. Dumb shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there. Outside, there is the stirring of birds among the leaves, or the sound of men going forth to their work, or the sigh and the sob of the wind coming down from the hills, and wandering round the silent house as though it feared to wake the sleepers, and yet must needs call forth sleep from her purple cave. Veil after veil of thin, dusky gauze is lifted, and by degrees the forms and colors of things are restored to them, and we watch the dawn remaking the world in its antique pattern. The wan mirrors get back their mimic life. The flameless tapers stand where we had left them, and beside them lies the half-cut book that we had been studying, or the wired flower that we had worn at the ball, or the letter we had been afraid to read, or that we have read too often. Nothing seems to us changed. Out of the unreal shadows of the night comes back the real life we had known, we have to resume it where we had left off, and there steals over a terrible sense of necessity for the continuance of energy in the same wearisome round of stereotyped habits, or a wild longing, as it may be, that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that had been refashioned anew in the darkness for a pleasure, a world which things would have fresh shapes and colors, and be changed, or have other secrets, a world in which the past would have little or no place, or survive, at any rate, in no conscious form of obligation or regret the remembrance of even joy having its bitterness, and the memories of pleasure their pain. It was the creations of such worlds as these that seemed to Dorian Gray to be the true object, or amongst the true objects of life. And in his search for sensations that would be at once new and delightful, and possess that element of strangeness that is so essential to romance, he would often adopt certain modes of thought that he knew to be really alien to his nature, abandon himself to their subtle influences, and then having, as it were, cut their color and satisfied his intellectual curiosity, leave them with that curious indifference that is not incompatible with a real ardor of temperament, and that, indeed, according to certain modern psychologists, is often a condition of it. It was rumored of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic Communion, and certainly the Roman ritual had always a great attraction for him. The daily sacrifice, more awful, really, than all the sacrifices of the antique world, stirred him as much by its superb rejection of the evidence of the senses as by the primitive simplicity of its elements and the eternal pathos of the human tragedy that it sought to symbolize, he loved to kneel down on the cold marble pavement and watch the priest, in his stiff, large vestment slowly and with white hands moving aside the veil of the tabernacle, or raising aloft the jeweled lantern-shaped monstrance with that pallid wafer that at times, one fain think, is indeed the panis the bread of angels, or robed in the garments of the Passion of Christ, breaking the host into the chalice and smiting his breast for his sins. The fuming censers that the grave boys in their lace and scarlet tossed into the air like great gilt flowers had their subtle fascination for him. As he passed out, he used to look with wonder at the black confessionals, and longed to sit in the dim shadow of one of them and listen to men and women whispering through the worn grating of the true story of their lives. But he never fell into the error of arresting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of or system or of mistaking, for a house in which to live, an inn that is but suitable for the sojourn of a night, or for a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail. Mysticism, with its marvelous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle antinomianism that always seems to accompany it, moved him for a season. For a season he inclined to the materialistic doctrines of the Darwinismist movement in Germany, and found a curious pleasure in tracing the thoughts and passions of men to some pearly cell in the brain, or some white nerve in the body, delighting in the conception of the absolute dependence of the spirit on certain physical conditions, morbid or healthy, normal or diseased. Yet, it has been said to him before, no theory of life seemed to him to be of any importance compared to life itself. He felt keenly conscious of how barren all intellectual speculation is when separated from action and experiment. He knew that the senses, no less than the soul, had their spiritual mysteries to reveal, and so he would now study perfumes and the secrets of their manufacture, distilling heavily-scented oils and burning odorous gums from the East. He saw that there was no mood of the mind that had not its counterpart in the sensuous life, and set himself to discover their true relations, wondering what there in frankincense that made one mystical, and in ambergris that stirred one's passions, and in violets that woke the memory of dead romances, and in musk that troubled the brain, and in champac that stained the imagination, and seeking often to elaborate a real psychology of perfumes and to estimate the several influences of sweet-smelling roots, and scented pollen-laden flowers, or aromatic balms, and of dark and fragrant woods, of spikenard that sickens, of hovenia that makes men mad, and of aloes that are said to be able to expel melancholy from the soul. At another time he devoted himself entirely to music, and in a long latticed room, with a vermilion and gold ceiling, and walls of olive-green lacquer, he used to give curious concerts, in which mad gypsies tore wild music from little zithers, or grave yellow shod Tunisians plucked at the strange strings of monstrous lutes, while grinning negroes beat monotonously upon copper drums, and, crouching upon scarlet mats, slim turbaned Indians blew through long pipes of reed or brass, and charmed, or feigned to charm, great hooded snakes and horrible horned adders. The harsh intervals and shrill discords of barbaric music stirred him at times when Schubert's grace, and Chopin's beautiful sorrows, and the mighty harmonies of Beethoven himself fell unheeded on his ear. He collected together from all parts of the world the strangest instruments that could be found either in the tombs of dead nations or among the few savage tribes that have survived contact with western civilizations and loved to touch and try them he the mysterious Juruparis of the rio negro indians that women are not allowed to look at that even youths may not see till they have been subjected to fasting and scourging and the earthen jars of peruvians that have the shrill cries of birds and flutes of human bones such as alfonso deval heard in chile and the sonorous green jaspers that are found near Cuzco and give forth a note of singular sweetness. He had painted gourds filled with pebbles that rattled when they're shaken, the long clarine of the Mexicans, into which the performer does not blow, but through which he inhales the air, the harsh door of the Amazon tribes, that is sounded by sentinels who sit all day long on high trees, and can be heard, it is said, at a distance of three leagues. The tepanastli that has two vibrating tongues of wood, and is beaten with sticks that are smeared with an elastic gum obtained from the milky juice of plants, the yodel bells of the Aztecs, that are hung in clusters like grapes, and a huge cylindrical drum, covered with the skins of great serpents, like the one that Bernal Diaz saw when he went with Cortez into the Mexican temple, and of whose doleful sound he has left us so vivid a description. The fantastic character of these instruments fascinated him, and he felt a curious delight in the thought that art, like nature, has her monsters. Things of bestial shape and with hideous voices, yet after some time he wearied of them and would sit in his box at the opera, either alone or with Lord Henry, listening in rapt pleasure to Tannhauser and seeing in the prelude to that great work of art a presentation of the tragedy of his own soul. On one occasion he took up the study of jewels and appeared at a costume ball as Ande de Joyeuse, admiral of France, in a dress covered with five hundred and sixty pearls. This taste enthralled him for years and, indeed, May be said never to have left him. He would often spend a whole day settling and resettling in their cases the various stones that he had collected, such as the olive green chrysoberyl that turns red by lamplight, the simophane with its wire like line of silver, the pistachio colored peridot, rose pink and wine yellow topazes, carbuncles of fiery scarlet with tremulous four rayed stars, flame red cinnamon stones, orange and violet spinels, and amethyst with their alternate layers of ruby and sapphire. He loved the red gold of sunstone, and the moonstone's pearly whiteness, and the broken rainbow of the milky opal. He had procured from Amsterdam three emeralds of extraordinary size and richness of color, and had a turquoise de la vieille roche that was the envy of all the connoisseurs. He discovered wonderful stories, also, about jewels. In Alfonso's clericalis disciplina, a serpent was mentioned with eyes of real jacinth, and in the romantic history of Alexander, the conqueror of Amanthia was said to have found in the Vale of Jordan Snakes, with collars of real emeralds growing on their backs. there is a gem in the brain of the dragon, Philostratus told us, and by the exhibition of golden letters in a scarlet robe, the monster could be thrown into a magical sleep, and slain. According to the great alchemist Pierre de Boniface, the diamond rendered a man invisible, and the gate of India made him eloquent. The Cornelian appeased anger, and the hyacinth provoked sleep, and the amethyst drove away the fumes of wine. The garnet cast out demons, and the hydropicus deprived the moon of her collar. The Selenite waxed and waned with the moon, and the Meluchias that discovers thieves could be affected only by the blood of kids. Leonardus Camillus had seen a white stone taken from the brain of a newly killed toad that was a certain antidote against poison. The bezwar that was found in the heart of Arabian deer was a charm that could cure the plague. In the nests of Arabian birds was the asplates that, according to Democritus, kept aware from any danger by fire. The King of Ceylon rode through his city with a large ruby in his hand at the ceremony of his coronation. The gates of the palace of John the priest were made of sardius, with the horn of the horned snake and rod, so that no man might bring poison within. Over the gable were two golden apples, in which there were two carbuncles, so that the gold might shine by day, and the carbuncles by night. In Lodge's strange romance, A Marguerite of America, it was stated that in the chamber of the queen one could behold all the chastity ladies of the world, enchased out of silver, looking through fair mirrors of chrysolites, carbuncles, sapphires, and green emeralds. Marco Polo had seen the inhabitants of Zimpangu place rose-colored pearls in the mouths of the dead. A sea monster had been enamored of the pearl that the diver brought to King Porozis, and had slain the thief, and mourned for seven moons over its loss. When the Huns lured the king into the Great Pit, he flung it away. Procopius tells the story. Nor was it ever found again, though the Emperor Anastasius offered five hundred weight of gold pieces for it. The King of Malabar had shown to a certain Venetian a rosary of five hundred and four pearls, one for every god that he worshipped. When the Duc de Valentinois, son of Alexander the VI, Sixth, visited Louis the Twelfth of France, his horse was loaded with gold leaves, according to Brantome, and his cap had double rows of roubles that threw out a great light. Charles of England had ridden in stirrups hung with four hundred and twenty one diamonds. Richard the Second had a coat, valued at thirty thousand marks, which was covered in ballet's rubies. Hall described Henry the Thirteenth on his way to the tower previous to his coronation, as wearing a jacket of raised gold, the placard embroidered with diamonds and other rich stones, and a great baudricke about his neck of large ballasts. The favorites of James I wore earrings of emerald set in gold filigree. Edward II gave to Pierre's Gabeston a suit of red-gold armor studded with jessons, a collar of gold roses set with turquoise stones, and a skull cap with pearls. Henry II wore jeweled gloves reaching to the elbow and had a hawk glove sewn with twelve rubies and fifty-two great orients. The ducal hat of Charles the Rash, the last duke of Burgundy of his race, was hung with pear-shaped pearls and studded with sapphires. How exquisite life had once been! How gorgeous in its pomp and decoration! Even to read of the luxury of the dead was wonderful. Then he turned his attention to embroideries and to the tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in the chill rooms of the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, And he always had an extraordinary faculty of becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up. He was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time brought in beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate, had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow john curls flumed and died many times, and the nights of horror repeated the story of their shame, but he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom. How different it was with material things! Where had they passed to? Where was the great crocus-colored robe on which the gods fought against the giants that had been worked by brown girls for the pleasure of Athena? Where the huge velarium that Nero stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, that titan sail of purple on which was represented by the starry sky, and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by white gilt grained steeds? He longed to see the curious table-napkins wrought for the priests of the sun, on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast. The mortuary cloth of King Chelpiric, with its three hundred golden bees, the fantastic robes that excited the indignation of the Bishop of Pontus, and were figured with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks, hunters, all, in fact, that a painter can copy from nature. In the coat that Charles of Orleans once wore, on the sleeves of which were embroidered the verses of a song beginning Madame, je tout joyeux, the musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note, of square shape in those days, formed with four pearls, the of the room that was prepared at the Palace of the Rheims for the use of Queen Joan of Burgundy, and was decorated with thirteen hundred and twenty-one parrots, made in embroidery and blazoned with the king's arms, and five hundred and sixty-one butterflies, whose wings were similarly ornamented with the arms of the queen, the whole worked in gold. Catherine de' Medici's had a mourning bed made for her of black velvet powdered with crescents and suns. Its curtains were made of damask, with leafy wreaths and garlands, figured upon a gold and silver ground, and fringed along the edges with broideries of pearls and it stood in a room hung with rows of Queen's devices and cut black velvet upon cloth of silver. Louis the Fourth had gold-embroidered cariotides, fifteen feet high in his apartment. The state bed of Sobieski, the King of Poland, was made of Smyrna gold brocade embroidered in turquoises with verses from the Koran. Its supports were of silver gilt, beautifully chased, and profusely set with enamel and jeweled medallions. It had been taken from the Turkish camp before Vienna, and the standard of Mohammed had stood beneath the tremulous gilt of his canopy. And so, for a whole year, he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textile and embroidered work, getting the dainty Delhi muslins, finely wrought with gold-thread palmates, and stitched over with iridescent beetles' wings, the daca gauzes, that from their transparency are known from the east as woven air and running water and the evening dew, strange-figured cloths from Java, elaborate yellow Chinese hangings, books bound in tawny satins or fair blue silks, and wrought with fer-de-lis, birds and images veils of Lassie worked in hungry Point, Sicilian brocades, and stiff Spanish velvets, Georgian work with its gilt coins, and Japanese focosas with their green-toned golds and their marvelously plumaged birds. He had a special passion, also, for ecclesiastical vestments, as indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. In the long cedar chests that lined the west gallery of his house, he had stored away many rare and beautiful specimens of what is really the raiment of the Bride of Christ who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen, that she may hide the pallid macerated body that is worn by the suffering that she seeks for and wounded by self-inflicted pain. He possessed a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold-thread damask, figured with a repeating pattern of golden pomegranates, set in six petaled formal blossoms, beyond which on either side was the pineapple device wrought in seed pearls. The orphreys were divided into panels representing scenes from the life of the Virgin, and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in coloured silks upon the hood. This was Italian work of the fifteenth century. Another cope was of green velvet, embroidered with heart shaped groups of encanthus leaves, from which spread long stemmed white blossoms, the details of which were picked out with silver thread and coloured crystals. The Morse bore a seraph's head in gold thread raised work; the orphreys were woven in a diaper of red and gold silk, and were starred with the medallions of many saints and martyrs, among whom was Saint Sebastian. He had chasubles, also, of amber coloured silk and blue silk and gold brocade and yellow silk damask and cloth of gold, figured with representations of the passion and crucifixion of Christ, and embroidered with lions and peacocks and other emblems, dalmatics of white satin and pink silk damask, decorated with tulips and dolphins and fleur-de-lis, altar frontals of crimson velvet and blue linen, and many corporals, chalice veils and sudaria. In the mystic offices to which such things were put, there was something that quickened his imagination. For these treasures, and everything that he collected in his lovely house, were to beat him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape for a season from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great to be borne. Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, he had hung with his own hands a terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life, and in front of it had draped a purple and gold pall as a curtain. For weeks he would not go there, would forget the hideous painted thing and get back his light heart, his wonderful joyousness, his passionate absorption in mere existence. Then, suddenly, some night, he would creep out of the house, go down to dreadful places near blue-gate fields, and stay there, day after day, until he was driven away. On his return he would sit in front of the picture, sometimes loathing it and himself, but filled, at other times, with that pride of individualism that is half the fascination of sin, and smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that had to bear the burden that should have been his own. After a few years, he could not endure to be long out of England, and gave up the villa that he had shared at Trouville with Lord Henry, as well as the little white-walled house at Algiers where they had more than once spent the winter. He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and was also afraid that during his absence someone might gain access to that room, in spite of the elaborate bars that he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that this would tell them nothing. It was true that the portrait still preserved, under all the foulness and ugliness of the face its marked likeness to himself. But what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted it. What was it to him how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if they told them, would they believe it? Yet he was afraid. Sometimes when he was down at his great house in Nottinghamshire, entertaining the fashionable young men of his own rank, who were his chief companions, and astounding the county by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendor of his mode of life, He would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with and that the picture was still there. What if it should be stolen? The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world will know his secret, then. Perhaps the world already suspected it. For, while he fascinated many, there were not a few who distrusted him. He was very nearly blackballed at a West End club, of which his birth and social position fully entitled him to become a member. And it was said on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend into the smoking-room of the Churchill, The Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in a marked manner and went out. Curious stories became current about him after he passed his twenty-fifth year. It was rumored that he had been seen brawling with foreign sailors in a low den in the distant parts of Whitechapel, and that he consorted with thieves in corners and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and when he used to reappear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners, or pass him with a sneer, or look at him with cold, searching eyes as though they were determined to discover his secret. Up such insolences and attempted slights, he, of course, took no notice. And in the opinion of most people, his frank debonair manner, his charming boyish smile, and the infinite grace of that wonderful youth that never seemed to leave him, were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calumnies, for so they termed them, that were circulated about him. It was remarked, however, that some of those who had been most intimate with him appeared, after time, to shun him. Women who had wildly adored him, and for his sake had braved all social censor and set convention at defiance, were seen to grow pallid with shame or horror if Dorian Gray entered the room. Yet these whispered scandals only increased, in the eyes of many, his strange and dangerous charm. His great wealth was a certain element of security. Society, civilized society at least, is never very ready to believe anything to the detriment of those who are both rich and fascinating. It feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals and, in its opinion, the highest respectability is of much less value than the possession of a good chef. And, after all, it is a very poor consolation to be told that the man who has been given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life. Even the cardinal virtues cannot atone for half-cold entrees, as Lord Henry remarked once, in a discussion on the subject, and there is possibly a good deal to be said for his view. For the canons of good society are, or should be, the same as the canons of art, Form is absolutely essential to it. It should have the dignity of a ceremony, as well as its unreality, and should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that make such plays delightful to us. Is insincerity such a terrible thing? I think not. It is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities. Such, at any rate, was Dorian Gray's opinion. He used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceive the ego in man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable, and of one essence. To him, Ben was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations, a complex multiform creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion, and whose very flesh was tainted with the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt-cold picture gallery of his country house, and look at the various portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert, described by Francis Osborne in his memoirs on the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James as one who was caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him not long company. Was it young Herbert's life that he sometimes led? Had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body till it reached his own? Was it some dim sense of that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly, and almost without cause, give utterance, in Basil Howard's studio, to the mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here, in gold-embroidered red doublet, jeweled surcoat, and gilt-edged ruff and wrist bands, stood Sir Anthony Sherard. With his silver and black armor piled at his feet. What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Giovanna of Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Were his own actions merely the dreams that the dead man had not dared to realize? Here, from the fading canvas, smiled Lady Elizabeth Dovereux, in her gauze hood, pearl stomacher, and pink-slash sleeves. A flower was in her right hand, and her left clasped an enamel collar of white and damask roses. On a table by her side, lay a mandolin and an apple. There were large green rosettes upon her little pointed shoes. He knew her life, and the strange stories that were told about her lovers. Had he something of her temperament in him? These oval, heavy-lidded eyes seemed to look curiously at him. What of George Willoughby, with his powdered hair and fantastic patches? How evil he looked! The face was saturnine and swarthy, and the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain. Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean, yellow hands that were so overladen with rings. He had been a macaroni of the eighteenth century, and the friend, in his youth, of Lord Ferrars. What of the second Lord Beckenham, the companion of the Prince Regent in his wildest days, and one of the witnesses at the secret marriage with Mrs. Fitzherbert? How proud and handsome he was, with his chestnut curls and insolent pose! What passions had he bequeathed? The world had looked upon him as infamous. He had led the ordies at Carleton House. The star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it all seemed! And his mother, with her Lady Hamilton face, and her moist, wine-dashed lips. He knew what he got from her. He had got from her his beauty, and his passion for the beauty of others. She laughed at him in her loose, bacchante dress. There were vine leaves in her hair. The purple spilled from the cup she was holding. The carnations of the painting had withered, but the eyes were still wonderful in their depth and brilliancy of color. They seemed to follow him wherever he went, yet one had ancestors in literature, as well as in one's own race. Near her, perhaps, in type and temperament, many of them, and certainly with an influence of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it appeared to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely the record of his own life, not as he had lived it in act and circumstance. But as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and his passions. He felt that he had known them all, those strange, terrible figures that had passed across the stage of the world and made sin so marvelous and evil so full of subtlety. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way their lives had been his own. The hero of the wonderful novel that had so influenced his life had himself known this curious fancy. In the seventh chapter he tells how crowned with laurel, lest lightning might strike him, he had sat, as Tiberius, in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantus, while dwarves and peacocks strutted round him, and the flute-player mocked the swing of the censer, and, as Caligula, had caroused with the green-shirted jockeys in their stables, and supped in an ivory manger, with a jewel-front horse, and, as Domitian, had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors, looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the dagger that was to end his days, and sick with that ennui, that terrible tedium vitae, that comes on to those whom life denies nothing, and had peered through a clear emerald at the red shambles of the circus, and then in a litter of pearl and purple drawn by silver shod mules, been carried through the streets of pomegranates to a house of gold, and heard men cry on Nero Caesar as he passed by, and, as a Lagabellus had painted his face with colors. And plied the distaff among the women and brought the moon from Carthage, and given her in mystic marriage to the sun over and over again. Doring used to read this fantastic chapter, and the two chapters immediately following, in which, as in some curious tapestries or cunningly wrought enamels, were pictured the awful and beautiful things of whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippo, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife and painted her lips with a scarlet poison that her lover might suck death from the dead thing he had fondled. Pietro Barbi, the Venetian known as Paul II, who sought in his vanity to assume the title of Formosus, and whose tiara, valued at two hundred thousand florins, was bought at the price of a terrible sin. Gian Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men, and whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him. The Borgia on his white horse, with fratricide riding beside him, and his mantle stained with the blood of Perotto, Pietro Riaro, the young Cardinal Archbishop of Florence, child and minion of Sixtus IV, whose beauty was eagled only by his debauchery, and who received Lenore of Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk, filled with nymphs and centaurs, and gilded a boy that he might serve at the feast as Ganymede or Hylas. Eslin, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death and who had a passion for red blood, as other men have for red wine. The son of the fiend, as was reported, and one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling with him for his own soul. Giampatista cibo who in mockery took the name of the innocent, and into whose torpid veins the blood of three lads were infused by a Jewish doctor, Sigismondo Malatesta, the lover of Isoda and the lord of Rimini, whose effigy was burned at Rome as the enemy of God and man, who strangled Policina with a napkin, and gave poison to Dean Dest in a cup of emerald, and in honour of a shameful passion built a pagan church for Christian worship. Charles the Sixth, who had so wildly adored his brother's wife that a leper warned him of the insanity that was coming on him, and who, when his brain had sickened and grown strange, could only be soothed by Saracen cards painted with the images of love and death and madness, and, in his trimmed jerkin and jewelled cap and incantus like curls, Grifanetto Baglioni, who slew Astor with his bride and Simonetta with his page, and whose comeliness was such that, as he lay dying in the yellow piazza Perugia, those who had hated him could not choose but weep, and Atalanta, who had cursed him, blessed him. There was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night, and they troubled his imagination in the day. The Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning, poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove and a jeweled fan, by a gilded pometer and by an amber chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book. There were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could realize his conception of the beautiful.